Thank you, team. Morena Tafana. We're starting uh, a new series for the new year, and they refer to these guys as the minor prophets. And um, there's really nothing minor about them. We just overlook them quite a bit. Um, you don't hear many sermons on Nahum or on Haggai. Um, but come January, I love to kind of unpack these guys because their message, especially for us today, is so relevant. It, it really speaks to where our hearts are at right now. The uncertainty of life, of what's going on, all of this is just fantastic stuff. So the way I'm going to break it down is I'm going to do two weeks on both. I'm going to do two weeks on Nahum, two weeks on Haggai. Um, the way I kind of breaking them down is the first sermon's going to be kind of the background of what's going on because it's really important to know who these guys are talking to in the context that they're in. And as much as this is like almost 3,000 or more than 3,000 years ago, you're going to find the similarities are just so eye-opening. Humanity is no different over time. We are the same. It's funny that, hey. Um, so first week, I'm going to unpack it, give you the big picture of what the prophet's going to be talking about, and then the next week we dive deeper into it. I'll do the same for Haggai as well. So we're going to wind back at least just over 3,000 years ago, and we're going to start with um, the promised land. So this is in the book of Joshua. As soon as they conquer the promised land, it's about 1120 BC, anywhere between 1150 and 1105 BC, but general picture, about 3,000 years ago, these guys finally get the land that God had promised them. They break it up amongst the tribes, all the brothers, and they are settled. And so for some 200 years, they're really happy just doing their own thing. It's kind of crazy stuff, though, because the next book after Joshua is the book of Judges. And if anyone's read the book of Judges, boy, that's humanity at its best, isn't it? It really is just brokenness everywhere. And brothers just tend to fight amongst each other, right? Um, and these guys are no exception, God or no God. And so we're going to keep fast forward, and we're going to go to approximately 930 BC, at the time of the death of the third king of Israel, the first king Saul, his successor David, the great king, and then David's son Solomon took over. And at the death of King Solomon, everything was going well. 200 years, they're all happy together. Solomon dies, and the family rift really becomes a rift. They split off 10 tribes to the north, and they call themselves the kingdom of Israel, the blue guys. To the south, there's two tribes, Simeon and Judah. Simeon just kind of gets kind of amalgamated into Judah. And so the yellow guys down south, the kingdom of Judah, they become two separate nations with their own kings doing their own thing. Their petty arguments took it a little bit too far, didn't it? For 200 years, they're great together. For the next 200 years, they're looking over their shoulder, especially the blue guys, the kingdom of Israel, because by 722 BC, they won't exist anymore. They will be gone. The Assyrians will come and wipe them out. So in just 400 years of getting the promised land, they fight amongst themselves and then they fight with others to the point where there is nothing left. Now, the Assyrians aren't something new. They didn't just show up out of nowhere, especially for the Israelites, the, guy, the blue guys in the northern kingdom. The Assyrians were uh, 
a kingdom, a power force for almost 1,500 years. And they were kind of like, well, the ancient world's version of the boogeyman. They, they weren't very nice people. Now, you've got to be kind of careful here because not many people were nice when they fought each other. And we see that even today, right? You start to hear some of the stuff that's coming out of the Ukraine or other little skirmishes. Humans don't tend to treat other humans well. Well, the Assyrians did it really well. They just didn't treat people well at all. They had uh, an ethnic cleansing uh, system where they, they kind of ripped people from their land and mixed them with other people so their bloodlines would be completely mixed and they would lose their identity. Uh, they would kill a lot of people. But about 820, so about 100 years the Blue Kingdom exists, Israel is already paying tribute to Assyria. They're already giving them money to just kind of keep them away from them. And this is, uh, if you ever go to the uh, British Museum, this is the black obelisk of Shalmaneser III. He was the king. And on this little obelisk, it's quite, I don't know about you guys, but for me, when I go to these places and you see this obelisk, it's literally like three feet in front of you. And it's like 3,000 years old. And it's got the stories that you've read in the Bible. All You know, you're just like, it's coming to life. And this is straight from 2 Kings. And the guy standing up there right at the edge, that's King Shalmaneser III. The guy kneeling is the Israel king, Jehu, who's bringing tribute. And the little scribble on the top there, that's Arcadian, the ancient Assyrian language. And it's fascinating. He says, basically, he's saying, the king of Israel is coming to give me tribute because I'm the king of the universe. And you can see the king bowing down. So this is about 100 years before 722. So it's not like the Assyrians are not known. They're around. Imagine for us Kiwis living with someone like the Nazis on our doorstep. Imagine if they had just taken over Australia. Imagine if they won World War II and they came down, they took over and wiped out Australia, and they're just right there. And, you know, we're worried because we're small. How do we stand up to these guys? This is what Israel most probably felt like. So, you know, they, they got all their taxes together and, and gave it to them to kind of keep them away. So this is great, this little thing here. Um, the thing is, it's actually written out in 2 Kings chapter 17, the fall of Israel. It happens about 100 years after that uh, relief was come out, about 80 years after the book of Jonah. Jonah who was sent to Nineveh to warn it of God's impending wrath upon them. Instead, the wrath seems to come upon Israel. Shalmaneser, this time it's the fifth, not the third, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hoshea, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal and had paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria, uh, of Assyria discovered that Hoshea was a tra traitor, for he had sent envoys to So, who's the, the um, pharaoh Osulkan, king of Egypt. And he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, Shalmaneser seized him and put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala, in Gozan, and, in, and on the Harbor River, and in the towns of the Medes. And that's it. The blue guys, gone. There's a fascinating inscription because actually Shalmaneser V died during the uh, process of taking over Israel and his successor, Sargon II, uh, king 
of Assyria took over the, the fight. And we had this inscription that was found uh, in one of the ruins uh, not far from Iraq. And it had, says this, it says, In my first year of reign, the people of Samaria, to the number of 27,290, I carried away. 50 chariots for my royal equipment I selected. The city I rebuilt, and I made it greater than it was before. People of the lands I conquered, I settled it therein. My official tartan, I placed them over them as governor. Sargon is bragging about taking over the province of Israel, which is kind of a nice little archaeological nugget that confirms the story in the Bible. So these Assyrians literally wipe out Israel. And the poor guys in Judah, can you imagine how they felt? But for a number of years, nothing really happened. Sargon II died and his son Sennacherib took over and then Sennacherib died and Esherdon took over. And then the son of Esherdon, Ashurbanipal, took over and he's the guy that we're mostly interested in. These are great names, aren't they? They just roll off your tongue. We Italians just don't think there's enough vowels in them to help us with uh, pronunciation. But um, Ashbanipolio, that would be better, right? Um, but Ashbanipol, he takes over, and this is the height of the Assyrian army, of the Assyrian Empire. This is the greatest they've ever been, will ever become. And in 1,500 years of complete domination, they are now right at the top of their game. And it's at this point that we read this. This was a tablet found in Babylon about Ashurbanipal, the mighty king, king of the universe, king of Assyria, king of the four regions of the world, king of kings, unrivaled prince who from the upper to the lower seas holds sway and has brought into submission at his feet all rulers, son of Esherodon, the great king, the mighty king, the king of the universe, the king of Assyria, viceroy of Babylon, king of Sumer and Achad, grandson of Sennacherib, the mighty king, king of the universe, king of Assyria, am I? He's got a complex, doesn't he? This was a tablet found in Babylon, just kind of telling the people of the region, <laughs> I'm the, I, I, no one's bigger than me. No one is bigger than me. We've um, actually got a photo of of him. Again, British Museum. I'm thinking this is like the minivan chariot because you can see the two little kids in the back, you know, with the wife and the family, so that's probably the in-laws or whatever up the front there and the kids are at the back. And that's a big chariot when you look at the little guy next to the wheel. But at this point, the Assyrian Empire weren't just a great army. They also had the largest library in the world at the time. Now, you've got to understand, there was no paper. It was all on tablets. And Ashurbanipal would, would brag that he had the largest collection of knowledge in the world. Again, if you go to the uh, British Museum, you'll be able to see fragments of this library. Of course, years later, you know, um, Alexandria, you know, would overtake that as the largest library, but it was destroyed just a few years after this. And there's another little photo of Ashurbanipal. Uh, he's on the hunt there, so they made sure that he made, they made him look good. Um, I just wonder how they get their beards like that. Um, I 
at the time of Nahum, the last little remnant of the Israelites that we today call the Jews because all we do have is Judah. Now, some of those from the tribes of the north did escape south away from Assyria, but the majority of them were taken and disappeared. And little old Judah is stuck there with this mighty empire right above them, but it gets worse. The Assyrians do something no one could ever believe at the time. They then bypassed Judah and took over Egypt. At that stage, nobody had defeated Egypt. That was a power that was impossible to defeat. Now, Judah is just wholly surrounded by Assyria. Can you imagine how they would be feeling in this moment? Can you imagine, you know, we still had issues with our brothers, but we didn't want them dead. And now who's left but us? Has God abandoned us? Has God kind of left us to our own devices? What, what do we do now? How do we... Can, can you imagine? I'd imagine some people today feel that way. You imagine being in a village in the Ukraine. You might feel just like Judah at the moment. Has the world abandoned us? You feel like we're surrounded? You don't even have to go to Ukraine. There are many other places in the world where people might feel just like Judah at this point. There is no way out. These guys defeated everything, everyone. Babylon's gone. Egypt is gone. And this is when Nahum comes into play. And it's interesting about Nahum because he opens up his, his uh, book, his, his letter, his prophecy, with this, a prophecy concerning Nineveh. He's not talking about the Jews who are left, about Judah. He's not talking about redemption per se. He's writing about Nineveh. And he calls it this, the book of the vision of Nahum, the El Koshite, which is really interesting. Nahum most probably was not born in Israel, though his parents might have been, and they were part of those people that were ripped out and disappeared amongst who knows where, over by the Medes, which is somewhere between Iraq and Iran and who knows what. He's El Koshite, which is interesting because El means God, and Kosh is a valley in, in Iraq. Fascinating, this guy was most probably born in a foreign land, and he's writing to his people who are, who knows where they are, but somehow the guys in Judah get it. They get this word. There's a fascinating story. If you want to do a, a, a Google check, uh, there's the tomb of Nahum in Iraq, and it's been, um, it's been messed around a little bit with all the wars that have been going on, and the U.S. government has, has given something like half a million dollars to restore the tomb of Nahum, which I find fascinating that um, the U.S. government thinks that's an important thing to restore. Uh, but the Jews who lived there for so long, they cared for this tomb, saying it was the tomb of Nahum. And when they were expelled from the land, they asked one of the Arab guys if they'd look after it. And that guy's family continued to look after it until he couldn't any longer when the war came through. Fascinating story if you want to do a little bit of a chase-up on that. So Nahum's in a foreign land, 
He's writing to Nineveh. And he's not real happy. You can hear the anger in his voice. Look from verse 3. It says this, The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Watch out what you're going to do, what's going to happen to you, because God is coming. For those of us who love a wrathful God, this is great stuff, huh? But it kind of makes us a little bit uncomfortable too, eh? But he's angry. I can imagine he's angry. His parents most probably were ripped apart. He wasn't able to grow up in the land that God had promised him. Finds himself separated from his people and questioning God, where is the justice in this? What's going on here? I thought you were God. Where where are you? Why aren't you doing something about this? I thought we were your people. I thought we had just that little bit of special privilege, you know, that you would care for us. You say it all the time. Where are you? Does anyone, has anyone ever felt like that? Times in which you felt just a little, it feels almost irreverent, doesn't it? But the writers in the Bible, they're they're not thinking whether we should be holy or not. They're they're really hurting. And and it's pouring out of them. Habakkuk, uh, who was a contemporary, he was in Judah at the time, and he was watching Egypt getting smashed by the Assyrians. And he's writing around the same time. And he says this, he says, How long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen or cry out, violence, but you do not save. It's fascinating, isn't it? And I hear some of us saying the same things. Maybe we're not in such a precarious position, but hey, life hasn't been all that easy lately, right? And though we've got it kind of good here in New Zealand, it's still a little bit, huh? And the weather yesterday kind of reminded us that it's always, it can always be sunny and beautiful and warm. That at a turn of a day, we could have wild winds, not just, you know, real things, but metaphorically in our lives. It can happen. Uh, Nahum goes on, and he's, he really pumps it here. He goes on to say, um, the Lord is jealous and he's an avenging God. He takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. You can just hear just how much names like holding on to these things. In verse 6, he goes, Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. And in verse 9, he continues on. Whoever plots against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. And you read this and you're thinking, now, if you're an Israelite, you're like, yes, where is he? Why isn't he doing this? But then there's this one little verse amongst all these craziness. It's verse 7. And Nahum says, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. It's like this whirlwind of disaster and craziness. And, and in the midst of that, this one verse just kind of hits home. It almost blows everything else away. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. (laughs) 
He cares for those who trust in him. And for Israel, that might be a difficult thing to hear because they don't have their land anymore. They've been ripped away. For those in Judah who are reading this, they're thinking, really? Keep trusting him? The waves are crashing. The water's rising. Yet that just pierces the soul. That in the midst of the storms, in the midst of the craziness, that we can stop and just hear that the Lord is good. Don't worry. <laughs> Not easy when you're in the storm, huh? Nahum's big point here is to say this, and we'll unpack it more next week. It's actually, you know what, guys? I know you all want to take arms and you want to fight. You want to build fortifications and defend, especially us Christians today. We feel the need that we've got to defend our belief, our faith, our rights, our position. But Nahum's like, you need to just step back and let God do his thing. It's the hardest thing for us to do, right? And actually, it's the hardest thing for any human to do because the Israelites were having the same issues 3,000 years ago. And it's hard for us to step back and say, okay, God, you are in control. Some of us are kind of cheerleading him. Come on, they deserve death. They deserve to die. You know, Jonah was like that, right? Jonah knew what, Israel, what the Ninevites were like, what the Assyrians were like. And when God wanted him to go there, he knew that God's just this compassionate God. Don't want to go there. You're going to forgive them for all the nastiness that they do. I don't want them to be forgiven. They need to die. The worst evangelism outreach program plan, Jonah had it. He used a sentence that said, you're all going to die. And they all were like, oh, oh man, we need to... We need to confess. Hallelujah. Why does it work for us? He didn't want them to, though. And he had a right. They were not nice people. They lived in fear every day. You didn't know when the armies came over the hill. They didn't have Wi-Fi back then or, or Google Earth. Satellites to tell them when these people were coming. They would just show up. That was pretty much history for most people up until about, what, 100 years ago? He had a right to be angry at these people. Romans, Paul tackles this with the Romans. I mean, the Roman, people, the Roman Christians were living in the center of the world at that time, the great city of Rome. But boy, was it an awful city to live in if you're a Christian. And he says to them this, he says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Take a step back. Let me do my work. Because God's first intention really is redemption. And as he tells Jonah, going to the worst people in history at that time, would you not want to see Nineveh saved? And it's interesting, Nineveh outlived Israel. So sometimes we need to be looking more at ourselves than we need to be looking at what others are doing. 
Sometimes we need to be a little bit more aware of what we are doing rather than pointing the finger at what the Ninevites are doing. Because for Jonah, there was nothing worse than the Assyrians. But for God, Israel weren't following and they should know better. The fascinating part of this story is at this point when Nahum is writing this book, Assyria is at its grandest in 1,500 years. It has never been bigger. And yet, just a little over 30 years from the writing of this book, Nineveh will fall and the Assyrian Empire will cease to exist. 300 years after that, the fall of Nineveh, Alexander the Great with his armies are going through the desert of northern Iraq, what we know today. And his physician is walking alongside of him making notes of these great cities that are in disrepair. Nobody remembers their names and he draws them and he writes about them without realising he's writing about Nineveh. In less than 300 years, even the people around Nineveh had forgotten about the Assyrians. 1,500 years, the greatest power in that time, in a short period fell. Historians today are still trying to figure out how quickly it fell. Like something must have happened, but they can't figure it out. It fell. And not only did it fall, it fell completely. The Babylonians with the Medes, within weeks, destroy the greatest empire. The people of Judah would never have believed it if you told them within 30 years Nineveh would not exist. How much do we need to just trust that God has this? And that our eyes can only see what we see here and now. We can't see tomorrow. We want to, and many try to, but only God has tomorrow in his hands. This book is very much about, yeah, there's a lot of wrong going on. Yeah, they're going to suffer, but that's not for you. You need to step back and trust God. So as we start a new year, as we start with Quite a lot going on in the world at the moment, right? You've got COVID that just doesn't want to go away. Why can't it go away? Please, somebody tell me why it can't go away. It just seems to be popping up and there's more variants coming out. And of course, the conspiracies are coming up as well. They're just as bad as COVID. Can't they go away too? And then all the political things in the US, they're acting like madmen. In Russia, who knows what's going on there? Europe is falling apart. China is rattling away over there. And you look at our world and you think, my goodness, what's going to happen this year? Trust in the Lord. Trust that he has got this. Trust that it's in his hands. He sees the bigger picture we can't. Let your anger subside. Let the love of Jesus fill you. Because Nineveh needs redemption. Let God deal 
with all that ugly stuff. We share the love of Christ and the hope that this year, Lord, will be better, not just for us, but for Nineveh as well. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask our music team to come up. I just want to pray that, you know, it's been good. Like, we've got a break, Christmas, New Year's, all of that. It's, it's all done, but we can almost feel the gears of the New Year starting. We're all ready to... January 8th, who can believe that? I can't believe eight days have already gone. Before you know it, kids will be back in school and life will move on. But I pray, I pray that you may put your trust in Jesus Christ. Put your trust in God the Father. Put your trust that his spirit will lead you, guide you, protect you, watch over you. Do not fear what is going on around you. For God is greater. God is bigger. And even though some things may fill you with anger, and rightly so at times, May you only know the love and grace of your Father in heaven. And may it fill your hearts. It is always a better year. Because God always goes before us. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.